Luke chapter 4 and verse 31. This is the word of the Lord. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said one to another, What is this? What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits. And they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. We'll later know Simon as Peter. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases, brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Well, the setting of our text this morning is the town of Capernaum. It's located on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee and was the main fishing village of the Galilean region. Capernaum would eventually become the headquarters of Jesus' earthly ministry. And of course, one of the main reasons for that is because of what we just learned in the previous text of how his hometown of Nazareth had treated him. Remember, Jesus stood up on that Sabbath day in his hometown synagogue and declared himself through the reading of Scripture to be the Messiah that they were waiting for, the one Scriptures prophesied about. But there in his hometown of Nazareth, instead of believing Jesus, they rejected Jesus. And if you'll remember, it was not a passive rejection. It was an aggressive one. In verse 29, you'll see it there with your Bibles remaining open. In Luke 4, they rose up and drove him out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. They wanted to kill him because of his claims 
to be the Son of God. Of course, as we read, Jesus miraculously escaped the clutches of their malice, but Nazareth had made their decision. It was not a place that Jesus could call home even though he grew up there. Capernaum, on the other hand, gladly welcomed Jesus into their town. In fact, if you were to visit the town of Capernaum today as you walk through the front entrance of the gate, those of you who have been there will remember it. There's a big sign that says, the town of Capernaum, the hometown of Jesus. The hometown of Jesus. Nazareth had rejected him, but Capernaum had received him. Now, Luke places the emphasis here in our text on the authority of Jesus. And again, when we parallel Nazareth's response with Capernaum's response, we see that in Nazareth, his authority was rejected. But in Capernaum, his authority was recognized, realized, and received. And when we talk about the authority of Jesus, we are referring to his absolute and sovereign rule, preeminence, and control over all things. That is what we mean by the authority of Jesus, his absolute, absolute sovereignty, his absolute preeminence, his absolute control over all things. And what did Jesus himself say about this authority? Well, in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, Jesus said, all authority, not most of it, not some of it, not only the things that happen good in the world, but all authority both in heaven and on earth belongs to to me, listen to me, Christian. We don't get to pick and choose the things that God has authority over. You don't get to pick and choose the things that God is sovereign over. He's sovereign over everything. All of heaven, all of earth, Jesus possesses authority over it all. And everything we believe as Christians is founded in this reality, the reality that all authority belongs to Jesus Christ and that his authority is the highest authority of time and space. Ephesians 1 tells us that he, Jesus, is seated, seated at the Father's right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has always possessed this authority because Jesus is God and Jesus has always existed. For from him, this universe was created. This universe is sustained. From him, this universe is governed. Every beat of your heart at this moment is ticking because God is holding it in his hands. And this is what we mean by the authority of Jesus. 
And the town of Capernaum is learning a little bit more about this authority that you and I have come to know in the fullness of God's word. They receive Jesus, and by their faith, they're learning bits and bits about what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God, and namely, his unrivaled sovereign authority. And there are three particular things. These are not exhaustive, by the way, as it relates to the authority of Jesus, because, again, he has all authority. But here are the examples that Luke wants to bring to our attention as the town of Capernaum is now learning these things. Number one, we see the authority of his word. The authority of his word. Look at verse 31. And Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching because his word possessed authority. Well, let's first talk about how that they were astonished at his teaching. Astonished. That is, they're amazed. They're taken back. They, they weren't new to the teaching of Scripture, but they certainly had never heard the Scriptures taught like this before. In fact, that Greek word for astonished gives the idea that they were struck by it. As one commentator said, thunderstruck. Of course, that, I believe, is an Aerosmith song, so I'll stay away from the illustration of that. But we have, we have the, I can't believe I just quoted Aerosmith. And I may be off on that. That bothers me, fellas. Can we edit that out later? You get the point here. You get the point. See, I'm not as ungodly as you guys are. They're struck by it, taken back by it, amazed. Why? Because look at what he says here in verse 32. His word possessed authority. Now, Mark's gospel adds a little bit to it, Mark 1.22. They were astonished at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, and then they add this, not like the scribes. So, so they're identifying here a distinct difference between Jesus' teaching and all the other teaching they've heard. Between Jesus' preaching and all the other preaching they've heard. Now, let's talk about the scribes for a moment because they're not necessarily bad guys. They're very intellectual people who knew the scriptures. However, the emphasis of their teaching was not on the words of God. The emphasis of their teaching was on the words and philosophies of men. When they taught, when the scribes taught, much like the Pharisees They didn't provide sound theology from the Word of God. They provide what I like to call second-hand theology. That is what the people during this Jewish culture believed about God and thought to be true about God was on what the scribes and Pharisees said instead of what the Scriptures said. So their entire belief system, that is the people in these synagogues, they built their entire belief system around second-hand theology rather than seeing what the Word of God says itself. Now there is a strong possibility that some of you might be living off of secondhand theology. 
you'd never set aside the Word of God. In fact, you brought it with you this morning to church. But sadly, you have anchored so much of your belief system about God, about church, about life in general. You've anchored it in the traditions and teachings of people that were never supported by Scripture. It's like that old song that I have very strong feelings about. It's not by the same people you listen to. (laughs) Old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. I have some very strong feelings about that song. But in the song, there's some verses that say, if it's good enough for mama, it's good enough for me. If it's good enough for daddy, it's good enough for me. It better not be. If we sit here this morning basing our entire belief system about Jesus, his church, and God, and the Bible, and everything else just because of what we heard from mama alone, we might be in trouble. That's secondhand theology. It's not sound theology. Secondhand theology is teaching that's out of context. It's petty. It's legalistic. It's joyless. It's an offense to the gospel of grace itself. That's how the scribes taught. Jesus, however, didn't teach like the scribes. No, no, no. When Jesus taught, he emphasized Not the traditions, not secondhand theology, not the philosophies of the people. He emphasized the actual words of God. He brought them to life right before their very eyes. He spoke clearly about their meaning. And we can't miss this or simply rush through it this morning because I need us to understand that Jesus staked his entire ministry on the absolute authority of the written word of God. Think about it up to this point. He defeated the temptations of Satan by standing on the word of God. His first recorded sermon in the New Testament was an exposition of Isaiah chapter 61. When we go study the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew, we find out that that entire sermon is an exposition of the law of God. Over and over again, Jesus would say, you've heard that it was said. You've heard that it was said. You've heard that it was said. What's he doing? He's quoting the Old Testament, and he's bringing an exposition about what it really means. And even after the resurrection, on the road to Emmaus, as we will eventually get there in our study of Luke, what does he do? He expounds the entire Old Testament. He says to these gentlemen that he's walking with, they have no idea who he is. But he says, everything you've read in the law, everything you've read in the Psalms, everything you've read in the prophets, that was all about me, Jesus. This is so very important, and I need you... As a church family, the members of the church, I need you to hear this. The authority of a sermon is not based upon the charisma, popularity, or experience of a preacher. That's not what makes a sermon authoritative. No, the authority of a sermon is the word of God. This is why we follow the instruction of Scripture. And the example of Christ, by ensuring 
that the routine diet that comes from this pulpit, from all of our pastors, is the preaching of the word, not the preaching of secondhand opinions, not the preaching of secondhand preferences, not the preaching of secondhand traditions, but the preaching of the word of God. You do not need to come here week after week wanting to know what I have to say. You need to come here wanting to know what God has to say. I realize this morning uh, that the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association is not calling my number asking me to represent them on the road. In other words, I'm not going to go down in history as a great preacher. I recognize that. I'm not even that among my peers. I may not even be that among our pastors. However, I do hope that to those of you who hear me preach week after week after week will have at least known me to be a clear preacher. Yes, that by my preaching, we have presented the authority of God's word, not the opinions of Jonathan, but the authority of God's word clearly in such a way that all of us can understand it. It's a personal goal of mine. Every time I get in this pulpit, I want to be accurate. I want to be clear. I want to be humble. I want to be filled with grace. I want to be passionate and urgent in my preaching. And I believe this is what's happening in Capernaum. They're hearing the words of God from Jesus himself with clarity and conviction in a way that they've never heard it before, in a way that none of us will ever hear it until we hear him speak face to face. Because this is God himself expounding his very essence. So not only must we acknowledge the authority of the words of Jesus, but as a church, we must see that Jesus, Jesus staked his entire ministry on the absolute authority of the written word, and so must his church. The authority is not in me. The authority is in here. This is amazing to them. Their entire synagogue Sabbath day was filled with a bunch of mumbo-jumbo, opinion preference, politics, traditions. And very rarely was the word of God taught in a way that emphasized the mind of God. So they see the authority of the word. It's amazing to them. Secondly, they see the authority of his power. They see the authority of his power. Begins at verse 33, and in this section we get an insight into two demonstrations of Jesus' sovereign power. The first is in relation to the spirit world. Jesus' powerful authority over Satan and his demons. Look at it there in verse 33. And, and I, I underline this in my notes. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon in the synagogue. Let me just stop right here and say that you can run into the devil in the most surprising places. Don't go over there. The devil's over there. Don't go watch that. The devil's in that. 
goes to church too. Now, I'm not sure you came to church this morning expecting to find a demon-possessed individual, but it's clear that even among the assembly of God's people, we can find the devil at work. We don't know how long this man's been there. Maybe it's his first Sunday, Sabbath day. Maybe it's his third month of Sabbath days. All we know is that Jesus walked into the Sabbath in the synagogue to do some teaching, and one of the people who were there were filled with the demon. And here's what happens. We have some crazy things happen in our services sometimes, but nothing like this. And we don't need any reenactments of it right now. Our security team will not know what to do, and I'm not sure casting out the demon is what they will do. Uh, Jesus is preaching when all of a sudden a man possessed by a demon starts to cry out. Verse 34, ha. Now, I know some of you looking at that, you're thinking, is this LOL, ha? This is not LOL, ha. This is, this is like, ah, ah. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Because they knew Jesus would one day destroy them. He had already told them that. Did they happen to think that that day had come? What have you to do with us, Jesus? Have you, have you come to destroy us? We know who you are, the Holy One of God. Let me, say, let me say a couple of things here that I wrote down in my notes. Number one, when God's truth is declared, evil spirits are angered. That's what's happening here. God's truth confronted dead religion. God's truth was being proclaimed and evil spirits were ticked off. Now, I don't know if this demon-possessed man again had been attending there for quite some time or it was his first visit, but what we do know is that this demon was no longer comfortable by the preaching that was taking place in that synagogue. I'm not accusing of any church troublemaker of being demon-possessed, but it often gravitates my own heart's attention when I look at a passage of Scripture like this and see good men of God filling pulpits, preaching the truth of God's Word, and all of a sudden, people get uncomfortable. That's what's happening here. The real presence of satanic influences now are seeking to oppose anything that resembles the truth of God. And may we be reminded of it. Where you work, where our kids go to school, where we attend church, anytime we stand up for truth, evil spirits are angered. I also wrote this down, that when the holy presence of God shows up, Evil spirits shudder. And we learn that from the book of James, don't we? That, that, that even, even the evil demons know who Jesus is, and they, they shudder by his presence. The word shudder means that they, they bristle like a frightening cat. It's the best cat expression I've got, all right? They shudder, which is why the demon says to Jesus, leave me alone. We don't have anything in common. What have you to do with us? Leave us alone. 
We, we know who you are. He wanted Jesus to go away. Because Satan and his minions do not like to be challenged by the presence of holiness. So what happens? Verse 35, Jesus rebuked the demon saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said one to another, what is this word? For with authority and power, authority and power, he commands even unclean spirits, and they do whatever he says. You see, Jesus exercised authority, not just in his word, but in his power. And his authority here is even over Satan and his demons. That means I never need to be afraid or threatened by the spirit world as a believer in Christ. Because he who is in me is greater than they who are in the world. I'm not threatened by jack-o'-lanterns. I'll stop there. Because he has authority over it all. He controls it all. They bow to him. They don't want to, but they do. And let me just say to all of us this morning that not only is Jesus exercising authority over Satan and his demons then, he is exercising that authority over them now. Now, I think this scene speaks volumes about the grace of Jesus. Because some of you might be sitting here thinking, well, what in the world does this have to do with me? I want you to think about it. It reminds us that by the sovereign authority and grace of Jesus Christ that there is hope for the worst of us. One of the reasons we see Jesus' power over demon-possessed people is a reminder that there is nothing in your life that God cannot cast out. His grace, His grace is good for the worst among us. What an expression of power. But we also see in this section that not only is Jesus' sovereign power demonstrated by his authority over the spirit world, but also by his authority over our physical existence. Look at how it happens in verse 38. He arose, he left the synagogue, church is over, and he does what every good Baptist does. He goes home to eat. He entered into Simon's house. He has no house of his own. And while there, verse 38 says, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. So again, it appears that Jesus was invited over for Sabbath lunch by a man named Peter. Again, the record says, Simon, we will learn him to be Peter quick enough. He would soon become one of the Lord's disciples. And while there at the lunch table, I'm not sure what, Mama Peter was cooking, maybe some falafel. But while they were there together, it was made known that Peter's mother-in-law was sick with a fever. Now, she doesn't appear to be dying. may have been the case. Scripture's not necessarily clear. But any of us know that a high fever can leave us in the same condition as Peter's mother-in-law is here, which is confined to the bed, unable to properly function. Just picture this 
precious lady, perhaps, I'm not sure what the deal was then, but it would be tissues in our case laying around the bedside, her covered up in covers because she just has this high aggressive fever. Now in some way, the family appeals to Jesus. And in an act of divine healing, Jesus goes and he removes the fever and Peter's mother-in-law immediately gets out of the bed and begins to serve the family. It was a miracle. One second, she was fever-stricken to the bed and the next second, she was up and making lunch. It was truly a day that they would never forget, perhaps one of the most influential moments in Peter's life as he began to learn who, in fact, Jesus was. But that's not all. When lunch is over, look at verse 40. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, the picture is, is maybe he's not even out of the house yet. The rumors have spread about what happened at church that morning. The rumors have spread. Somebody posted on Facebook from Peter's house that mama's feeling better. All right, whatever's happening, it's spreading. And, and the picture is, he's not even left the house. But now all these people who had anybody they knew in their life who was sick with all kinds of diseases, they bring them to Jesus, and what did he do? He laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Now think about this. Every manner of disease and disability was there. I was thinking about that even in our own church this morning, just, just here. Here among us, there's cancer, diabetes, paralysis, MS, spina bifida, Parkinson's, depression, anxiety disorders, heart failure, COPD, arthritis, dementia, Alzheimer's. And we could keep going, couldn't we? That's, that's just here at Laurel Baptist Church. And Jesus heals every one. Could you imagine Tate coming in this morning, walking out the door as if nothing's ever happened? Can you imagine your mom taking off that mask as she leaves today? Because the cancer's completely gone. Can you imagine Phyllis Hargett showing up to church next Sunday because there's no more Parkinson's? Friends, that's what's happening here. Well, several years ago, while preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, I, I came to this parallel passage, as some of you will remember. I, I preached a sermon called, Will Jesus Heal My Sickness? The premise of that is based upon what we see happening here. Because for most of us as believers, the issue is not if we believe Jesus actually did this. Okay, we believe it. We believe he actually did this. And for most of us, we, we don't even debate whether or not God continues to heal people. We see that. Just this weekend, I saw a pastor brother who was declared dead by his doctors in the mountains of North Carolina, all of a sudden, 
they found miraculously blood flowing in his brain again. That's a miracle. So we don't debate whether or not God still does these things. Really the question that captivates my mind and your mind is, will Jesus heal my sickness? Will Jesus heal my sickness? Well, let me just tell you a couple things that I see here. Write write these five statements down and then we'll move on and close. Number one, I want you to know, first of all, Jesus cares about your pain. He cares about your pain. Perhaps no greater expression of the compassion of Jesus is seen than what we see here in these verses, beginning at verse 40. He touched every one of them. Now, this is huge because in the Jewish culture, you didn't touch the people who were sick. Some of of y'all act like that now after COVID's got us all messed up. We go into Publix. And we're walking down the aisle, and somebody we don't know, <laughs> whoop, going to go this way. <laughs> we're all messed up. You know, you don't touch. You don't touch. In fact, the, the lepers themselves were required by law to cry out, unclean, unclean. You ought to start doing that when you go to Publix. You got your allergies messed with you. Somebody comes by, they're cramming your space. You know what I mean? Like, I like that aisle to myself now. Well, I don't go to Walmart. Five or six carts down the aisle. Can't handle that. Then you walk down the aisle and you see them just start yelling, unclean, unclean, unclean. See what happens. Well, they were required to do that because you don't touch people who are sick. And what does Jesus do? He touches every one of them. Every one of them. You see, it's not only an expression of the outflow of his power, but of the tenderness of his love towards sinners, towards sufferers. I just need you to know, for any who are sick among us, Jesus cares about your pain. Secondly, there is no limit to his power. There is no limit to his power because notice what the text says here in verse 40 any who were sick look Jesus the great physician doesn't have a referral program go to the doctor hey I'm struggling with this you know what I can't help you with that but I know a good doctor who can they give you no and finally three months later you go to them they're like you know actually I can't help you with that either and we got to go send you over there okay that's not Jesus friends Jesus doesn't have a specialty in relation to certain kind of sicknesses. There's not a sign on the top of his office door that says, I deal with demons only. Any sickness, any sickness, it is a reminder us that there is no limit to his power. Viruses are not sovereign. Cancer is not sovereign. Diseases are not sovereign. Jesus is sovereign. His power can overcome any illness. It can. But here, here's the thing. Number three. He is not obligated to heal all sicknesses. He is not obligated to heal all sicknesses. Now, he did that in Capernaum, didn't he? But he didn't do this in every town. 
He didn't do this for everyone who was sick. He has sovereign power. He has the authority to heal any sickness, but his authority is also carried out by his sovereign will and his sovereign purpose. You see, for you and I to trust God's authority over our physical existence is to trust that not only is he able to heal, but he also knows when to heal. And that when may not be now. And it may never be here. It may be there. But although he is not obligated to heal, let me say this, he is intensely generous to give grace in pain. My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. Remember that? God, please take this away. Please take this away. Please take this away. God says, no, I'm not going to take it away. It's there for my purposes, but I'll give you grace to deal with it. I remember in a season of frustration recently in my life as I deal with my own struggles of mental health. I remember sitting down with my doctor who's an elder of a church in town. He said, look, pastor, this may never go away. You may have to deal with this the rest of your life. But what I do know is that God will give you the strength of his presence and God will give you the grace of medication. I may live with this the rest of my life. You may live with yours the rest of your life. He may choose to heal us, but he's not obligated to. Number four, his healings are never more important than his gospel. Are you listening? His healings are never more important than his gospel. We're going to see it in just a minute. But when Jesus left Capernaum in verse 43, he didn't say, I must go heal other sicknesses in other towns also. No, he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also. That's my purpose. Healings is not his purpose. The gospel is his purpose. The reason Jesus provided healing was always for the purpose of bringing faith in him as the son of God. In other words, our sins being forgiven is far more important than our sicknesses being healed. And then I wrote down number five here. He is worthy of my faith and service regardless of what he chooses for my life. Job said, though he slay me, I will still hope in him. And then on the other end, Peter's mother-in-law rose up and served him as soon as healing came to her body. The point is, whether God chooses to heal us or not, whether like Job he takes everything away, whether like Peter's mother-in-law he gives her new life, regardless, he is still worthy of our faith and service. The one who is sovereignly in control is the one who sovereignly knows what is best for his glory and purpose. And I'm challenged by people like that. I remember I saw Sharon this morning. So good to see Sharon. I don't know where she's at. So, so where you at? There you are. So good. She's been gone for two months. I thought this morning as I was reading in my notes for the very last time, I just wrote down here in my notes, Mike Eustace. Mike knew he was days away from dying. But you know where he wanted to spend the last Sunday of his life? in the worship of God's people. I'll never forget looking back that Sunday morning just moments before he died. 
him not even being all the way here, but here. And just being challenged by a man who had spent the last at least eight years of his life battling with cancer, but his faith and service to the Lord never wavered. Will Jesus heal my sickness? I don't know. He can, but he's not obligated to. And whatever he chooses, he will give us the grace to endure the sickness that is in our life. Well, let me give you one more, and then we'll go see what uh, mother-in-law is cooking today, right? The authority of his kingdom. I wonder if that's why Peter brought it to Jesus' attention. Because mother-in-law was always doing the cooking. They didn't have any lunch on the table. And they're all scrambling, trying to figure out what's going on and say, Jesus, I'm sorry. We would normally have steak and baked potato today, but mama's sick. I don't know. Just throwing that out there for something to think about. Number three, the authority of his kingdom. The authority of his kingdom. Verse 42, let's wrap it up here. When it was day, he departed, went into a desolate place. The people saw him, came to him, and would have kept him from leaving. They didn't want him to go. I mean, would you? I mean, good night. This guy's done so much in 24 hours. Think about what he could do if he just stayed here the whole time. Verse 43, but he said to them, I must. I must preach the good news of the kingdom to other towns as well. I was sent for this purpose. Now, this is the first mention of the kingdom of God in the gospel of Luke, and it will occur many times moving forward from this point. What do we mean by the kingdom of God? It refers to Jesus' sovereign rule and those within his kingdom who submit to his lordship. That is what is meant to the kingdom of God. It is Jesus' sovereign rule along with those who are in his kingdom and submit to his lordship. In fact, the kingdom of God is a past manifestation. That's because God has always been. He has always been sovereign. So the kingdom of God has always existed because God has always existed. But there's also a present manifestation of the kingdom of God. Because where do we find the kingdom of God? Well, we find it in Christ. In Christ, in his sovereign authority. In other words, wherever Christ went, his kingdom was there. And even today, when men and women come to faith in him, his kingdom enters our hearts. All believers are a part of the kingdom of God. So there's a present manifestation of the kingdom. There's also a future manifestation of the kingdom. That is the fullness The perfect fullness of Christ's kingdom is coming. It's why he said, pray every day, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. You see, the kingdom of God is the fullness of the gospel. That's the kingdom of God. And that's what Scripture is declaring here, that the sovereign authority of Jesus exists over salvation itself, that those who follow him as Lord are those who submit to his sovereign rule. Jesus as Lord. I am coming to him as my Lord. No longer my way, his way. No longer my authority, his authority. I am submitting everything to the king, King Jesus. You can't be in the kingdom unless you're submitted to the king. We struggle with this. In fact, we think about authority, even the word itself, it's a struggle. Two things that all human beings struggle with, authority and accountability. We struggle with authority, right? But that's the essence of the gospel. Here's what Jesus has done to be your king. And now in order for you to be in the kingdom, you have to submit to him as king. Kent Hughes in his 
writings on the Gospel of Luke said this. Just, just follow me for a moment. Our culture has fostered a rebellious, submit-to-no-one spirit. He goes on. Marriages fall apart because spouses have never submitted to anything or anyone unless they want to. Children are taught to question authority. Students reject teacher's authority. Employees buckle under the authority of employers. And so it goes with citizens in regards to laws and government and with believers in regard to the church. Add to this, he says, the uniquely American worship of independence and individualism. And we have a potent recipe for a profound inability to truly submit to any authority, even that of Christ himself. And he goes on to say this. You cannot enjoy a kingdom unless you are submitted to the king. Jesus didn't say... I'm going to preach a prayer for others to repeat after me. He said, I'm going to preach the kingdom of God. That I'm the king. And those who want in my kingdom must submit to my rule and reign. I wonder this morning, are you submitted to the king? Jesus' authority has been established by his word, his power, and his kingdom. In fact, there's a lot about this universe we don't know. Isn't that true? But there's one thing we do know. That all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus. So, in a world of chaos, seemingly chaos, We know there is one who is in sovereign control, working all for his purpose and glory. In a world of brokenness, we have hope that the perfection of his full kingdom is coming. And in a world of no absolutes, we can't even tell you what a woman is what a man is. It's where we live today. We, as God's people, are affirmed of the absolute truth of Jesus Christ and his word. The only question that remains is will I, like Capernaum, receive that authority in my life? Or will I, like Nazareth, resist and reject that authority? Oh, I beg you this morning, don't reject him. Bow to him in faith and repentance. Because there's coming a day where you will bow to him like the demons, whether you want to or not. And that day, you will do so standing outside the kingdom, not in the kingdom. May the real 
preacher do his work in our hearts. Let's stand together.